This morning we are continuing our series in, um, text me Shannon, we are continuing our series here through the multicultural character of the kingdom of God, put the wrong slide up on the first thing but we'll get that right in a second, um, and we are continuing to look at this aspect of how the gospel and the story of God is the story of God reaching people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to the ends of the earth and to the ends of the earth that exist here in our own community. Our wisdom writes John Calvin, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But, he continues, as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. Is it that knowledge of ourself leads us to a deeper knowledge of God, or is it that a knowledge of God leads us to a deeper knowledge of ourselves? And Calvin argues that it's actually both of these things, that one necessarily leads to the other, which necessarily leads to the other, and the cycle expands so that we would grow in the knowledge of ourself and that we would also grow thereby in our knowledge and in our relationship with God. Here this morning... We're looking at a passage that will challenge us to grow in our knowledge of ourselves and to grow in our knowledge and the understanding of ourselves, and it challenges us in this way so that we would grow in knowledge and understanding of God. The way that's going to happen this morning is that we are going to examine how the gospel critiques and affirms cultures and how our culture, our own culture, any culture, but our own culture, both informs and blinds our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of Scripture. And the way that we're going to do that this morning is by comparing two situations and two passages of Scripture. One is in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14, and also in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The understanding of these passages, the exposition of these passages, it's pretty straightforward and has been agreed on by scholars for many years. But Tim Keller does something very helpful in that he takes these two situations and he puts them side by side and compares and contrasts exactly what's going on in both situations. And that's what we'll look at here this morning. And as we examine this conflict, the nature of the conflict is what is the appropriate food for Christians to eat? It's a conflict that I imagine most of us are completely unfamiliar with in our own personal life. And the reason why we're focusing on this is that hopefully, by examining a conflict that has occurred in two other cultures that we're not a part of, that hopefully by examining that conflict, which maybe we're able to do a little bit more objectively, that would give us insight into how we should examine and critique our own culture and our own situations. Well, what's the situation? What's the problem? The situation going on is on the surface, there is a conflict over food. And in both Romans chapter 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul characterizes the two sides of the conflict between a conflict between the strong and a conflict between the weak. So in Romans chapter 14, the text says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person believes, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment 
on the servant of another. And we're going to be going back and forth between these passages. The issue going on in Rome, in the church in Rome, was that there were Christians who felt that Christians, if you became a believer in Jesus, you needed to practice the Old Testament dietary laws. You needed to eat kosher, and you needed to reject eating forbidden food. There were others who said that there is absolutely nothing wrong with eating the full range of food. And by the way, the community group guide this week um, is going to be diving into, first, or into Romans chapter 14 and 15 at a, much deeper level, at a much deeper level than I have the space to go over with here this morning. But a question in Rome was, is it, do you, do you, should Christians follow the Old Testament kosher laws or not? In 1 Corinthians, it was also a conflict over food. But the conflict over food there was a dispute over meat that has been offered to idols and offered to pagan gods. Should Christians eat meat that has been offered to a pagan idol? And some Christians said, it's fine for you to do that. And other Christians said, no, it is wrong. You should never eat food to a pagan god or that has been tainted with paganism in any sort of the way. Now, the reason why this was such an issue in Corinth was because much, if not most, if not all of the meat in the marketplace had been offered to a pagan god. And, as was the practice in Corinth, any sort of public meeting, any sort of dinner, any sort of reception, any sort of happy hour, any sort of business meeting, any sort of wedding, any sort of fellowship event that you would have, almost certainly that meat would have been offered to a pagan deity. And in fact, if you were invited over to someone's house for dinner, the way that a formal invitation would go out would say, the great God so-and-so invites you over to the house of his servant, the host of the party, to your house for dinner. So any invitation would have that on it as well. And if you were someone who was impoverished um, and you couldn't afford meat, it's quite likely that the only meat that you would receive for you and for your family, and thus protein, came through these public meals. So there was a debate in the church. Should Christians eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols or not eat meat sacrificed to idols? And the way that Paul characterizes the debate in both situations, and here's, let me read 1 Corinthians 8, here's how it's described. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. So both in Paul's instructions to the church in Rome and his instructions to the church in Corinth, he delineates the two groups as the weak and as the strong in both locations. The weak in both locations were those who had a more restrictive expression of the Christian faith. Their consciences were not as oriented to God's grace and love. They felt, they, they felt condemned, they felt defiled by 
food, um, that any sort of food violation that they perceived. And in both passages, the weak, for them, there was no gray area. Each and every Christian practice, each and every practice was either universally right or it was universally wrong. And as accordingly, they wanted lots of rules in order to bolster their weak conscience and weak rules so that they would know what to do. At the same time, though, the weak who had these many rules, and stay with me, we're going back and forth between the weak and the strong here, the weak were very judgmental of Christians who didn't practice their faith exactly like them. Characterization of the weak. Now, the strong in both locations had a better grasp of the gospel. They understood what Jesus did and the freedom that Jesus brings and how Jesus overcomes many of these barriers. But the strong were very judgmental of Christians who were restrictive. So, in Rome, the strong were Christians who understood that Jesus Christ had made the Old Testament dietary laws obsolete and no longer applied. And the weak in Rome were those who were bound by, these, by eating kosher and by Old Testament dietary laws. They were narrow-minded. They were very legalistic in their expression of the Christian faith. In Corinth, the strong were those that understood that there was freedom in matters not specifically described in the Word of God. So, 1 Corinthians 8.4 says this, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And so the strong in Corinth, they were not superstitious thinking that somehow their meat had been tainted because somebody dedicated it to a piece of stone or to a piece of wood. They weren't superstitious about, superstitious about that. And so the strong in Corinth said there's nothing wrong with eating meat offered to an idol. And the weak... But the weak in Corinth were those who most likely had been delivered from paganism, who had rejected their past and rejected their false worship and rejected their former way of life. And so for them to eat meat, for them to eat meat that had been offered to an idol felt like they were compromising their faith. That's the surface issue. Do you eat? Do you not eat? Division between the strong and the weak. But there was a much deeper issue going on that Paul specifically addresses. If you look at this passage, and I think if you were there in either one of these locations in the church of Corinth or the church of Rome, you would see something very different. You would see a different, something different and a different understanding of this conflict. Because if you were in the church, what you would see is this. You would see, wait a second, there is this theological division but, why is it that all of the Jewish Christians hold this position and all of the Gentile Christians hold that position? In the Church of Rome, it was also divided along racial lines. And commentators um, for years have been noting that underneath the theological issue was a racial issue that was dividing the churches. And as Tim Keller observes, these were not simply theological disputes are simply cultural divisions, but they were extremely complex combinations of both. Combinations of both theological issues and cultural issues. So, therefore, it would be wrong to reduce the issue in these two churches to a matter of doctrinal correctness. 
it would be wrong to reduce the issue to a matter of theological purity and theological correctness. And here is how the racial division worked in these two languages. I'm sorry, in these two locations. Stay with me as we look at the weak and the strong. In Rome, where the issue was Old Testament dietary laws, the weak almost certainly were Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians who felt that you just couldn't disregard the word of God and what God has said before. But in Rome, the strong were Gentile Christians who knew that in Christ Jesus, they were no longer bound by the Old Testament laws and the Old Testament dietary restrictions. The Gentile Christians knew this, and they said, no, there's freedom. We don't have to do those things. We don't have to abide by the Old Testament principles. But in Corinth, so in Rome, the weak were Jewish Christians. In Rome, the strong were Gentile Christians. But in Corinth, the weak, it was flip-flopped, the weak were Gentile Christians, but the strong were Jewish Christians. For in Corinth, the weak were Gentile Christians of former paganism background whose consciences were sensitive about their former ways of life. And in Corinth, the strong were Jewish Christians who knew that the Greek gods were non-entities. They've scorned them their whole life. Why should they care? Keller continues, the important point to note is that in one situation, cultural sensibilities made one group blinder to aspects of the gospel, while in another situation, those same cultural sensibilities made that same group wiser about the implications of the gospel. Their culture made them both wiser and blinder to the truth of Jesus Christ. Their culture gave them both insight into the gospel and created a barrier to the gospel in their own life. Let's pause here there and draw some application from this. Every and any expression of Christianity is culturally expressed. Every and any expression of any truth is culturally expressed. None of us are culturally neutral. There is no pure expression of Christianity. There's no pure expression of Christianity that is culture-free. And that is true even for Jesus Christ. If you recall, Jesus was a Jewish male. He was not an African male. He was not an American female. He was a Jewish male raised in a working-class home who spoke Aramaic and lived in ancient Palestine. Now, the truth of Jesus Christ was not bound by his culture, but the truth of Jesus Christ was expressed through it. In fact, we celebrate this, that Jesus Christ incarnated himself. He incarnate. He be incarnate. That is, is that he became, he put himself incarnate, incarnate meat, in flesh. He put himself in flesh. And Philippians says this exact thing, thing, when he encourages us, Paul encourages us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, 
he humbled himself by, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What did Jesus do? Is that he left heaven and he incarnated himself. He manifested himself in human form, in the form of, in the form of a Jewish male in the first century. God became flesh and manifested himself in that form. Biblical truth does not change, but cultural expressions do change. And biblical truth is always culturally expressed, including right now. You are listening to this sermon in American English, not in Spanish, not in Swahili. And you are listening to this, ser- the, to this message in the midst of a worship service that, has, that is culturally derived. You are all sitting in very padded, wide, comfy chairs. And you are all expecting to get out of here at 12.00. I think if we did the, took the, adopted the practice of some other churches around the globe, where the expectation would be that the worship service would be at least three hours, that the preacher was expected to preach for at least two hours nonstop, and you would be standing the entire time. I would venture that many people would not come back to Cornerstone if that was the cultural expression of our worship service here. Biblical truth does not change, but its cultural expressions do. What does that mean for us? It means like the weak and the strong of Corinth, And like the weak and the strong of Rome, for whom both of whom had aspects of their culture that made them wiser to the truths of Scripture, and aspects of their culture that made them blinder to the truths of Scripture. What this means for us is that every culture, including our own, has been broken and corrupted by sin. And because it has been corrupted by sin, every culture inherently has aspects that create blindness to the gospel. Every culture has cultural prejudices that are barriers for the gospel to come to different people. Every culture, in our own culture, that we ourselves have cultural prejudices that we need to lose in order to grow in the gospel. The Jews needed to learn not to look down at their weaker Corinthian brothers. The Jews also needed to learn the fullness of what Jesus Christ did freedom from the Old Testament dietary laws. They needed to grow beyond their disdain, and they needed to have an understanding and awareness of their prejudices. It is true for us as well. If you think that you don't have any prejudices, and one of the favorite quotes of white people when it comes to the issue of race is, I'm not a racist, I'm not prejudiced. Brace yourself for what's about to be said next, right? I mean, brace yourself for what's going to be said. I'm not prejudiced, but brace yourself for what's about to be said. Every one of us has cultural prejudices. And if you don't think you have cultural prejudices, yeah, you're prejudiced indeed. Because it's not that you don't have them. It just means that you're not aware of them. And every culture has them. So every culture has brokenness, corruption by sin, prejudices, things that cause blindness to the gospel and barriers for the gospel to come to a different people group. At the same time, every culture has unique expressions of God's truth, unique expressions of what it means to be an image bearer of God. In the Christian church, it has unique expressions of the Christian faith 
However, there are cultural perspectives that cannot and should not be lost. And they cannot and should not be lost because they are necessary to enhance the church and enhance the body of Christ just as the Gentile and Jewish believers and the conflict and the resolution of that conflict enhance both of their faiths. And that is true for our culture as well. Let me give you an example of this. You know, the American church is so individualistic. I've spoken about it. No American individualism. Don't tell me what to do if I don't like, you know, don't tell me what to do. I don't want to go to a church that tells me what to do. And if I don't like what you're saying up there, I'm just going to go somewhere else. There's not a loyalty to a church. There's not loyalty to, the loyalty is to individual satisfaction. And if people don't like what's being set up here, they just pick up and go somewhere else. I don't like what that guy says. A year ago, I was having lunch with a family from Ghana who has subsequently moved, who was attending our church for a while. They've subsequently moved to Northern Virginia. And we were having lunch, and out of the blue, one of the ladies says to me this. She says, you know what the great thing about the American church is? It's like, what? She goes, it is so individualistic. Isn't it wonderful? And I'm like, is she joking? I'm like... She, she said, no, it, isn't it great how individualistic the American church is? I'm like, you got to help me here. Like, you really got to help me here. And she goes, well, sure. I mean, in the American church, you have to own your faith for yourself. I mean, you have to make an individual decision about whether you believe these things or not. You see, if in Ghana, she said, where I'm from, in my village, you go to church whether you believe it or don't believe it. Because your father's going to church, and your grandfather's going to church, and all your uncles are going to church, and all of your family members are going to church, and they are all going to be walking past your door on their way to church. And when your village walks past your house, everybody knows whether or not you went to church. And, quite, and she goes, and you don't want to deal with it if you didn't go to church. Okay. Now, what's the negative aspect of, her, of that cultural experience? Well, the negative side is she identified is that people just go through the motions and they don't really believe it. What's the positive side of that expression of Christianity? There's an incredibly strong community. There's an incredible level of mutual accountability that if practiced at a fraction of the level in the American evangelical church, people would run and flee. I don't want to go to a church that has people talking to me like that. I don't want to go to a church that has people calling me to account like that. This individualism... The, the, the cultural value and the cultural and the community within the Ghanaian church, something that the American church desperately needs to, le- to, needs to learn about. And the individualism of the American church, as she identified, is something that needs to be expressed in the Ghanaian church. The truth of Scripture, as we examined a little bit ago, that God deals with us as a me and as a we. There's a need for those two to come together. That for every one of us, there are aspects of our cultures that makes us wiser to the gospel and aspects that make us blinder to the gospel. Which is why, for me, for my personal spiritual growth, disregard obedience to the Great Commission for a minute. For my, obe- for my own spiritual growth, I need other Christians from other cultures to speak to my life. I need other Christians from other cultures to help me see and understand the limitations of my faith as it has been expressed through my own cultural expressions. And that there is a spiritual deficiency that grows and a spiritual blindness 
and a spiritual callousness and a spiritual cataract that affects your spiritual vision as long as you continue to live in a monocultural existence. How do you overcome that? Well, you invite people who are different from you into relationships. And if you don't have that, I would ask you that you would earnestly pray for a significant friendship for someone of a different background and a different nationality. A significant friendship where you're sharing meals together and sharing life together. And that you would journey together in your Christian faith. As Keller observes, into each culture, Christianity brings a core of transcultural, transformative, absolute values that both judges and completes the culture's values and the culture's mores. Well, how do we see this in Corinth and in Rome? How does the gospel speak to both sides? Remember that the church, in the church conflict, the strong were those who were correct. The strong were those who understood the gospel. The strong were those who had the right theological answer in both situations, who were not narrow-minded. And surprisingly, Paul gives a very harsh rebuke to the strong in both churches. He acknowledges that they were right, that they were theologically right, but he criticized them because they disdained the weak who were not only of a different theological persuasion, but yes, also happened to be a different racial persuasion that happened to match the cultural disdain that their own race already had for that other race as well. Romans 14.10, why do you pass judgment on your brothers? Or why do you despise your brothers? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. Yes, he critiques the weak as well. But in 1 Corinthians 8, there are many verses when Paul giving this strong rebuke for the strong, a rebuke to the strong for their disdain and treatment of the weak. Paul refused to look at the conflict in either church simply as a theological issue. Though one was right and one was wrong, the superior, the superiority of one group of people demonstrated towards the other, the superiority of one race towards the other race, synonymous with racism, the racism of one group toward the other group, the superiority that one race felt towards another race, showed itself in different ways in both situations. The weak were letting their cultural biases distort their understanding of the gospel, and the strong were letting their cultural biases, strangle the application of the gospel in their lives. So, in Corinth, what happens is this. Paul says to them, to the weak, but take care that this right of yours, you're correct. Your view is right. You've got the right answer. You are theologically on target. You passed the test, A+. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge Eating in idol's temple, will he he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Verse 11, listen to this. And so by your knowledge, by your correctness, by your theological rightness, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against, you sin against Christ. Strong rebuke. Though they were correct, they would not here in 
Corinth, they would not, they would not change their behavior even though it was harming people. Jewish Christians refused to help their superstitious Gentile brothers and sisters understand the implications of the gospel. And so what happened when they're in Corinth, they just went ahead and ate meat. And they said, you know what? I can't help this if this makes them upset. They're wrong. Why should I care? It's not my problem. It's their problem because they've got a wrong view. They've got a wrong understanding. If they would just correct their views and correct their beliefs, it wouldn't be an issue. The strong. Keller continues, who congratulated themselves on understanding the gospel were acting just as self-righteous and narrow-minded as the weak, though in a different way. One group, theologically strong and right and accurate, but relationally and culturally and spiritually weak. They understood the scriptures and they understood what Jesus Christ had done enough, intellectually enough, that they could arrive at the correct position, but they did not understand it personally enough to treat other racial, culture, cultural groups with the love, humility, respect, and service and sacrifice that the gospel requires. Paul's rebuke in both of these cases is a strong rebuke to Christians, particularly Christians who have good doctrine, Christians who have the right answer. Because Paul's rebuke is, that's great you've got the right answer, but is it being manifested and sacrificial love to overcome cultural and racial and theological barriers? Is it showing itself? Well, Paul gives this principle. How does the gospel require us to treat people who are different? He lays out a summary verse in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The word there for welcome means to welcome into your home, to welcome into your family, like the way that a Bride is welcomed into the family of a groom. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Other translations are accept one another as Christ has accepted you. How has Christ welcomed us? How has he accepted you? Did he say, you know what? When you get the right answers, when you figure this stuff out, my door's open. You can come in. I've got no objection. If you've got it right, you're, there's a place for you here. No, what did he do? Is that he left the throne of heaven. He took the first step. He made the initiative. He entered into the darkness and the brokenness of this world. He gave himself when we were enemies of God. He made a way that we could be reconciled and restored to him and welcomed into his household and welcomed into his family. Welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. And he gives some more specific applications building up to verse 7 and verses 1 through 3. We who are strong, if you identify yourself that way, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Not to bear with the weakness of the weak. He's more specific. Bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us build, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The point is that the rejection you have received, Jesus Christ received that rejection in spades. Let each of you please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. To enter in, to refrain from judging and condemning, to love others, to show love, respect, value, to sacrifice yourself, to go to others that they might experience the love of Jesus Christ. This is so different than the modern concept of tolerance. 
and the idea of tolerance that is promoted in your workplaces and your school places. You know, the idea of tolerance today says this. You need to accept everyone, and you need to accept every position as neutral. Everyone every position as neutral. You cannot critique. You cannot evaluate someone else's beliefs or behaviors. And so for you to say that someone is incorrect, for you to say that someone is wrong, that someone is sinning, that is intolerant. And now, in these days, it's on the verge of hate speech for you to do so. But there's also an aspect of the modern mantra of tolerance that evangelical Christians really embrace, unfortunately, which is the other side of tolerance is this. If I'm supposed to accept every position as neutral, if I can't critique or evaluate anyone else's beliefs or behaviors and I can't comment on that, well, you better not do the same to me. And if what I do upsets you, that's your problem, not mine. That's your issue, not my issue. I mean, if I'm doing the right things and you've got a problem with that, that's your deal. That's your problem. That's exactly the same thing that the strong were doing both in in Corinth and in Rome. We're right. We're going to keep practicing with the right. If they've got an issue with it, that's their fault. That's their problem. But Paul says this, let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. Let each of us please his neighbor to act in such a way that our conduct, our behavior, our cultural practices are pleasing for my neighbor. How different that is than the modern concept of of tolerance, is it not? That I would act in such a way that my neighbor would be pleased? Wow. I mean, we would say, hey, if I'm acting the way that Christ calls me to do, like the strong we're doing, who cares if they're getting it wrong? Well, they would hopefully get it right, but I don't care what they think of me. Should I care what they think of me? Well, not if that's where your approval and your worth is based on. But should you care with what your neighbor thinks of you? Paul says, yes. That your conduct would act in such a way that your neighbor would be pleased for his good to build them up. That you would bear with the failings of others as you perceive them and not live to please yourself. Not live saying, if what I'm doing upsets you, that's your problem. No, you're saying, if what I'm doing upsets you, that's my problem. Because I'm not being obedient to Jesus if that's the case. Unfortunately, as I said, so many Christians have embodied this attitude and their practice of this, Christians' practice of this, is no different than our culture's practice of tolerance. But what Paul is exhorting people to here is the exact opposite of that. Love, humility, service, accommodating another person, welcoming another person, going to another person because Jesus Christ has welcomed you and welcomed you into his family. You know, this past week at our community group, we had some great insights about this. We had a discussion about, you know, what are the implications of this for multiculturalism in our church? You know, what does this mean for uh, ethnic minority churches? Are those good things? Are those bad things? Is that a wrong thing? What have you? And two people gave, gave, gave some observations. They said, you know what? What exactly the church is supposed to do You know, there's a lot of different models of that that's not especially that clear. You know, we can debate that. I think there's some principles that need to be demonstrated. But what's true for the individual Christian is painfully clear. And what individual Christians should be doing in their life is overtly clear. 
And if individual Christians are living out what the gospel requires, and they are living out the intentionality that Jesus called us to, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, a different race, and to the ends of the earth, if Christians are living that out in their individual lives and having friendships with people who are different than themselves, it's not going to be awkward to invite someone to church who's different because they already have a relationship with you. And what the church should be doing will work itself out because this truth is being worked out in the lives of the believers in this church. And so the application from this is really quite simple. It's a calling for us that we would intentionally, deliberately, sacrificially welcome others because Christ has welcomed you. That you would love others because Christ has loved you. That you would go to others because Jesus Christ has gone to you. That we would welcome others because Christ has welcomed us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you did not stay in heaven saying, anyone's welcome. They can come here if they want to. But Lord, you sought after us. You entered into darkness. You entered into the frailty of human form and human weakness. And though you never sinned, you identified yourself with sinners so that sinners like me could be welcomed into your family and welcomed into your household. Lord, may what you have done be expressed in our lives. May we intentionally and sacrificially seek to please our neighbor because you intentionally and sacrificially pleased us by saving us from ourselves, by calling us friends and adopting us into your household. Lord, would this truth be expressed in our lives? Lord, would you expose to us our cultural blindness and our cultural prejudice? Would you expose that to us so that our faith would be richer, so that our faith would deepen, and so that people who are not like us would come to know you and that they too would be encouraged in their faith from our cultural perspective. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.